Welcome to Community Matters, a podcast from the Canadian Association of Community Health Centres. I'm your host, Hilary Leblanc. On this episode of the podcast, I am joined by Jeremy Mayu, Senior Manager of Development at AVI Health and Community Services, a community health centre in Vancouver Island. The mission of AVI is to promote health, dignity, and well-being for all people affected by HIV, HCV, and substance use by delivering sex-positive and harm reduction-based education prevention and support services. While we will be discussing various aspects of AVI Health and Community Services work, internationally July 28th is known as World Hepatitis Day and we would like to highlight the work AVI is doing around hepatitis care. How are you doing today, Jeremy? Great, thanks Hillary. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Awesome, thank you so much for being here. Um, So tell us a little bit more about your community health center, the programs you offer, the community that you serve, and also a little bit about how you got involved with AVI. Sure. AVI uh, is located here in Vancouver Island. We operate on the unceded traditional territory of the Sinaimo, Sna'anaas, and Staminas peoples. Um, It's now called Nanaimo commonly. Um, We are a low barrier community health center located in downtown Nanaimo. Um, We service Uh, marginalized folks uh, from the LGBTQ community to people experiencing substance use disorder um, and recently to the unhoused population here. Um, We're located right down in the downtown core and we started out as an AIDS service organization almost 30 years ago. Um, We started offering primary care to people with HIV and we started a small primary care clinic around HIV and hepatitis C. Um, And when the CHC model uh, was presented to us, we thought that it really made sense based on the history of our our organization and sort of the shared ethics that we had. Um, And we uh, started growing a CHC model here. So currently we're offering uh, focused on primary care services for the LGBTQ2S plus community, uh, people experiencing substance use disorder, and like I said, the unhoused population. And what that looks like at the ground level is our HIV and HCV primary care. We offer PrEP um, and STI services. These were all historical components. We've added on top of that just general primary care uh, for folks. Um, we offer uh, Sorry, we offer oat therapy, so opioid agonist therapy. Um, and recently we've started offering medical alternatives to the toxic uh, drug supply. Um, we have an education team, uh, so we do a lot of community education and we have a great team of support workers that work around um, the social determinants of health for folks that are clients in our clinic. Um, I first encountered AVI almost five years ago now. Um, I was working in the private sector in the community um, and I came for our PrEP services. PrEP for anyone that doesn't know is pre-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, This is a medication that you can take um, that prevents you from being able to acquire the HIV virus or HIV. Um, I'm sorry, I don't usually do a podcast, Hillary, so I'm a little stumbly, but thank you. (laughs) <laughs> no, thanks for being perfect. so generous. Uh, so I made an appointment with the clinic and I came down and part of the screening process is we test you for HIV before you have access to PrEP so that we're not creating uh, drug resistant mutations or anything like that. 
and I found out that I was HIV positive. Um, here, I didn't have a lot of choices around who I would have for a primary care physician, and ABI was able to offer me primary care. Uh, like most people in British Columbia, I didn't have access to a, a general practitioner, uh, much less one that had any experience around infectious diseases. So um, I started as a client, um, and after about a year of getting great wraparound care, um, awesome attachment to community, um, support around things like nutrition, uh, medication adherence, um, I decided to come aboard as an educator. Um, I did a brief stint as the clinic manager, and now I've moved into a development role um, because we really believe this CHC model um, fits. For me, it was to be able to come into a place that was culturally competent, so where I wasn't feeling shame around being a gay man or around having HIV expertise and then the sort of community connections that I was able to access uh, by coming to some place that was for and by my community. No, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your story on top of the story of ABI. Having been able to hear it beforehand, I just knew it would be very important for our listeners to understand the full scope of the, um, both perspectives of where we're coming from in this conversation today. Um, as I mentioned, July 28th is World Hepatitis Day. And for anyone who doesn't know, um, what are the different types of hepatitis and what can living with these illnesses look like for some of the clients and community that you serve? Sure. There's five different types, but we're going to talk about the main three that people talk about. The other ones are a little bit more exotic and rare uh, and not commonly experienced by the populations here. Um, so hepatitis A, a lot of people hear about, um, is, a, is born through fecal matter. So you can catch it from uh, people have seen those commercials about an ice cube or from poor sanitation or from not having access to great sanitation. Um, there's a vaccine available for that that's safe and effective uh, that a lot of people have access to. It's often offered to folks before they travel, um, but it's, it's safe and effective uh, and an easy one. Um, hepatitis B is transmitted through blood, semen, and other body fluids. It also has a safe and effective vaccine. Um, it's just about getting that vaccine into people's hands, as we know, and making sure that, um, you know, people are able to access health in an equitable fashion. Um, and then there's hepatitis C, which is bloodborne and occasionally born uh, through sex. Um, there's very small amounts available in semen, but it's primarily a bloodborne infection. Um, there is no vaccine available for this, but there is a very effective treatment. The problem with that treatment is there's some deep barriers uh, to accessing that treatment. And this is what a lot of our sort of activism and advocacy around hepatitis C is based around. Um, it is a eight to 12 week treatment, depending on the medication, and it's very expensive. So if a person is experiencing any sort of marginalization or barrier, whether that's transportation, um, access to a primary care physician, um, or things like nutrition, or the, the things that you would require to be able to take a medication consistently every day over a long period. Um, so there's, there's a lot of barriers that cost will often cause doctors in some more traditional settings, um, to not, uh, allow a patient to access it based on the, um, likelihood of them completing the treatment. So it's sort of a little bit of a 
you know, a secret thing that a lot of people don't and aren't aware of that there's people out there that we're aware have hepatitis C, but they struggle to access healthcare in an equitable fashion. Um, and this is kind of what we're all about. We have a really active uh, treat and seek program at AVI. So our hepatitis C program is something we have always done. We work with Island Health here. So we're funded a couple of different ways to operate this program, um, which is why a little bit of great CHC funding would help us not have to cobble this together because the complexity of folks experiencing this, uh, the complexity of their care um, often goes well beyond what a normal physician where it's, you know, you come in, you have your appointment and you leave. Um, it often goes beyond what they're able to provide. When someone comes to our program or we find them because we find a lot of people through our outreach program, We've had mobile outreach um, where we are testing folks um, who are unhoused, uh, who, who are um, frequenting areas that um, that where folks are experiencing marginalization. So we connect them to treatment and then we offer them support around things like nutrition, housing access, um, disability applications, sometimes even really basic stuff like identification and support them through that process and then beyond um, so that we're able to have successful care treatments, uh, uh, successful completions. Wow, I, I didn't expect, I knew I would learn something, but I really did not know any of that information. And so I, I hope, I hope that people listening do know that, but also like that there's some amazing takeaways there because I did not know any, any of that stuff. I mean, I, I knew what you said about hepatitis A and B, but C, I definitely am much more in the dark about. So that's very interesting. Um, in terms of the services and programs that you do provide around hepatitis, I'd love for you to explain. I know you touched on some there, but please um, tell our listeners more about what ABI does in, in terms of that scope. So beyond the medical care, which is actually relatively complex, there's a lot of paperwork based on the cost of the medication, and there's a lot of testing and blood work um, just to make sure that the person isn't experiencing any complications from the medication, which is rare, but um, it's worth noting. Um, a lot of the support that we'll do, often somebody will present um, both for substance use disorder treatment as well as hepatitis treatment. Um, and it's great when we're able to tackle both those things concurrently. So our OAT program is often being used simultaneously um, with that program. And we're supporting people around um, uh, substitutions for opioids, uh, which, which is great. If somebody is not thinking about how they're going to acquire street level drugs every day, they have a lot more time to focus on their journey to wellness and on things like medication adherence. Um, we have a great nutrition program. We, um, collaborate with food share Nanaimo here to offer good food bags. So if somebody is housed and has access, they may not have awareness or education around even how to to eat basic meals. When I first started treatment, um, I was a standard guy and, and didn't treatment for HIV just to uh, defer. Um, I had no investment in my own personal wellness. I didn't take vitamins. I wasn't really big on making sure that I was eating nutritious food or generally loving myself. And that's the the position a lot of folks are in when they receive this deeply disturbing news that they have something like HIV or hepatitis C, it feels like the worst day of your life. And you think, I don't even have an apple in my fridge. 
I, I'm eating two day old cold pizza and, and how am I ever going to beat this thing? Right. So to be able to present somebody with a bag of fresh produce and some information on how that can work for them or to support them around accessing things like the food bank, because maybe they never have before, or maybe they're carrying some stigma or shame around that um, is a really big deal. These really basic foundations uh, it goes without saying that helping somebody with something like a housing application is obviously going to make daily medication adherence a lot better if they have stable housing. These social determinants of health often uh, really have a deep say in whether somebody is going to be able to change their situation or or not. Um, we have a great support person that helps them with any sort of the social work aspects. And then we also have a really great counselor. Having a counselor that has cultural competency around either lived experience with drug use or uh, being part of a marginalized community can make all the difference in the world. Uh, the ability to be heard is, is uh, foundational to a lot of people's path to wellness. Um, so we find that to be really important. We've also, because we've adopted the CHC model, we've really been able to expand those pieces out. We're now offering um, a lot of different wellness services. So we have a yoga and meditation class. We have a mindfulness class. And what we're trying to do is instill capacity in folks. We don't just want to be there for the emergency. We want to help them in the emergency, but we want to support them the rest of the time. Um, so things like our wellness classes, we offer Dharma recovery, which is uh, an alternative to things like alcohol, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, it's a great program that has, a, it's a Buddhist-based recovery program um, where folks, again, are building capacity to support them and to help them be stable um, as they take the next steps. Um, those are really important things for us, um, and we're going to keep doing it. We've been able to um, even refine things a little bit. So this spring, we were able to offer a uh, support group for men who have experienced sexualized trauma, whether that's in childhood or through partner abuse, um, that was um, culturally competent for the men who have sex with men community. So to have something that is culturally competent for the uh, GB, uh, gay or bisexual men is, is, is something we're really proud of. Um, we hope to build on that in the coming year with something around uh, recovery from religious abuse or situations where spirituality has harmed you. Um, so we're really working on expanding those programs even further and beyond that. We also have brought in recently, we have a great uh, dental hygienist who's doing teeth cleanings for anyone that has uh, access to PWD or persons with disability here in British Columbia. So we find all of these pieces and it's a different package for every person, um, but having each one of these components is really contributing to the long-term success of our clients, uh, having a strong clinic foundation and then a strong basis in the social components, um, we think is the only way to do this, this type of medicine and to have long-term success for the clients and to resist burnout for the practitioners. Um, because we we want to win. We we want folks, you know, we want things to turn out for folks and we want good outcomes. Um, and without all those other components, it can be really stressful for a doctor to or a nurse. Um, or anybody, even the support people to operate in these environments. So we find this model really contributes all the way around um, to success for everybody. Um, and other doctors in our community are noticing, which is really exciting. So 
That's great. I, 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 you really touched on a lot that I resonates with me personally, but specifically, you know, the idea that you're not worrying about solving 18 other issues in your life. You can really focus on taking care of yourself. And I think that that's huge. Um, speaking a bit more to, I feel like you named so many successes in terms of what the work ABI is doing, but I just wanted to see if there were any specific successes from these programs that you wanted to touch on, or maybe even some challenges as well that have come up while you're setting up all of this amazing work. Uh, well, one of the big challenges, and I, you know, I tread carefully here, one of the big challenges is sort of the, um, the landscape that we tread, right? So the first piece of where we're patching together this care that should be available, we have this idea, um, I'm someone that grew up close to you in Windsor, right across from the border. And as a Canadian, we have this idea, right? We hear it in the media, our healthcare is fantastic. It's so amazing. And that's true until it isn't. Um, and we talked about some of the barriers to accessing something as basic as hepatitis C care. Um, these barriers only get bigger when you're in a medium-sized population center or a rural community, and it almost creates different classes of access to healthcare. So the answer to healthcare is great in Canada is sort of yes and. Um, it's great as a gay man, if I lived in downtown Vancouver, I'd have access to a litany of different services that I simply don't have access to on Vancouver Island, for instance. And that's speaking from my personal experience. Um, when I had to take my care out of the clinic, as I made my commitment to, to, um, working here longer and taking a more expanded role, the trouble of finding somebody to take on my care in my community um, was very, very difficult. I thought for a while I was going to have to travel hours. And that's someone with a ridiculous amount of privilege. I I work in a, you know, I, I am lucky enough to work in a clinic. And um, I really even, I didn't realize how good I had it when I first accessed AVI until I had to start looking outwards. And I had all these ideas of what my care would look like. And I'm really lucky to get good care now, but there was a lot of uncertainty around that. I can't imagine if I had more barriers. So I guess the first piece is that there's this really terrible problem with funding where funding through, I think our, if I were to look at HIV and HCV alone, we probably have six different funding streams just to do the work because someone wants to fund a nurse and somebody wants to fund a counselor. And then we're going to make a different type of grant work for the social programs for those components. Like it, there's nobody is paying to take care of the whole person, even though it's economically so much more viable. Um, and we can talk more about that in a moment. But what I would say the success is that I'm seeing communities and, you know, we spoke on this a little bit before we started recording, but what I'm seeing in communities is this almost grassroots movement of people saying it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to be competing with each other for grants. We actually you know, we've, we do a lot of amazing things in 2023. I'm pretty sure Elon Musk has like 35,000 satellites rotating around earth. I'm sure we can sort out healthcare funding at the Canadian level. COVID taught us that 
you know, the government is not a monolith. It's actually very changeable and the response time can be very quick. Uh, results may vary. So I'm not advocating for these types of super quick movements. But if we're very thoughtful about how we administer healthcare in Canada and how we choose to fund it, um, we can make fantastic changes. And I'm starting to see folks in communities pop up everywhere. When I meet with other CHC uh, operators, it you know, the hopefulness is amazing. And we're all starting to sort of come together now to become one voice um, with many locations. Um, I think we're finding out, at least here on the island, we're definitely finding out that when healthcare doesn't happen from one centralized source, when we're giving communities access and First Nations Health Authority on Vancouver Island is a great example here. Um, they legalized, well, they started paying for PrEP two years before the BC provincial government decided to cover it. So in cases like that, FNHA was actually ahead of the province in terms of how, and to me, that says when you give a community the opportunity to make decisions about their health care and to decide the best way to spend that money, they they will. Uh, people will often make decisions that are in their own best self-interest when you give them that and they are the people most likely to be able to determine that. And we're really starting to see this revolution in healthcare in British Columbia um, at a ground level. We get a lot of support from the people that you would think, and I don't wanna be partisan and sort of call out our, uh, I think it's pretty standard which parties have feelings about how they would support healthcare. So I don't think you'd have to work very hard to figure out you know, which political parties uh, are supporting us. Um, but we've had some great supporters and we really appreciate that advocacy too. So we're really optimistic. I'm feeling very optimistic here in British Columbia and particularly on Vancouver Island um, that we're seeing a lot of change fermenting and uh, about ready to explode. Like somebody made some really good kombucha that's... <laughs> Yeah, that's about to be perfect and ready. Um, the other success I get to see is the day-to-day -day success. As somebody with deep connections in my community, um, I serve the community that I work in. Um, so I get to see the changes every day. Um, I get to see something like um, health promotions around the monkeypox vaccine making a difference. Um, I get to see people that... Um, we do a lot of trans-affirming care here, for instance, and things that are non-traditional and not considered part of a normal walk-in clinic. So the joy of seeing that is that I get to see what happens to folks after. I get to see folks go on and do more advocacy work because we've been able to support them. Um, I get to see people, see people be activated because they feel like they have a voice and like they have a stake in AVI. Um, and, and that's, that's really, that's heartening, you know, in, in the current healthcare climate that, um, if we persevere, I think we're getting closer and closer to changing the way things are happening. What a lovely answer. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was such a great scope. I think of what, of the reality of what's going on, but also like still so, so hopeful. And I hope that the kombucha that explodes is just as delicious as we <laughs> want it to be fingers crossed. And I wish they would make some good kombucha across the whole country. Um, 
Um, in terms of, um, I wanted to ask around, um, you know, the, the care and services that you provide around HIV and AIDS as well. And I noticed while doing some of my research that obviously there's an intersectionality between the, the HIV care and the hepatitis C care. Um, and, and you touched on briefly, obviously, what hepatitis C looks like. And I'm just wondering for anyone who hasn't figured it all out, why do the, you know, those clients seem to overlap so much? Or why is there an overlapping in the care of those, the, these two viruses? You know, like everything, that's there's a nuanced answer for this, right? And and I'm going to lead with that. Um, in most of our provinces, there's been a real sort of disconnect and a delay between those services being delivered. So aid service organizations, and I'll, I'll speak from that context, these are organizations that might have been started um, during the 80s, and they're typically community-based organizations. And many aid service organizations um, have gone on over time to expand their sort of mandate to other bloodborne infections. So the first sort of overlap of why these are often linked um, in a sp specific care provider is that they're both bloodborne infections, right? We've also expanded um, our our sort of range of care out to other STIs. That's also been very common. And then to sexual wellness in general. So hepatitis C doesn't always but can have a a uh, sexual transmission route. Um, the sort of second reason I would say why is because a lot of people experiencing both these conditions are severely marginalized. Um, the sad fact in this country is that if you are somebody who is, you know, in the top 1%, the reality is you have a much easier time accessing healthcare, even though we have socialized medicine. And that's the way of the world, um, but we're trying to create a little bit of equity. So it very clearly fell under our mission and value system um, in, in the exact same way. As our um, mission has expanded out to working with people experiencing substance use disorder, which is where a lot of hepatitis C um, may first present, um, it naturally even reinforced that that is part of of our mandate and mission. And I think you're seeing that at a lot of different aid service organizations that have sort of continued along this trajectory of becoming either a clinic, either a community clinic or a full-blown community health center. Um, so there's a lot of really great overlap. Um, the care can be very similar. HCV has a much shorter um, amount of care, but uh, you do have to be taking the medication on a daily basis. So medication adherence, we already had built into our clinic how to support people around ideas of medication adherence. Um, so there's sort of a bunch of different overlaps, whether it's amongst the treatment protocol, the population, um, or what's required at a clinic level to support people around that. Um, and I think, you know, anyone that is accessing Katie, that's C-A-I-T-I-E, um, that's one of the resources that folks have for HIV and HCV, you'd love to give them a plug. Um, and speaking of historical AIDS service organizations, I want to send love to the AIDS Committee of Windsor. Uh, I volunteered there in high school, and that's how I started um, being involved in this type of work. Uh, there are people that are close to my heart. Um, probably not the people that are there now, but hello, you all keep plugging. Uh, that's, you know, um, and that's sort of it is we already had one foot in this work. It makes perfect sense for us to keep doing it um, and providing that care. 
Yeah, absolutely. That does make perfect sense. Um, so speaking of World Hepatitis Day, July 28th, one of the AVI locations is throwing an event. I saw through social media, obviously. Um, so please, if you could tell us a little bit more for the people in that area who might look to, you know, get educated or participate on this day on July 28th, what AVI has going on. Uh, I'm really glad that you asked. Um, you know, we talked a lot about medical stuff today, but a lot of the work that we do is also around things like advocacy, education, community engagement, and um, ensuring that they're, you know, folks are able to spread the word. Uh, World Hepatitis Day is on July 28th, and AVI Health and Community Services is partnered with Mina Mercury uh, and the Friends of Dorothy. Great great location in Victoria to raise awareness around hepatitis C. Uh, they're going to do a dinner and drag. Amina uh, Mercury is hosting. Um, and it's going to be from 6.30 to 8 at Friends of Dorothy. Um, that's at 537 Johnson Street. Um, it's an all-ages venue. Um, they're going to collect donations. And 100% of the donations um, made in the name of World Hepatitis Day will be directed to support ABI's food, education, and healthcare programs for individuals impacted by HCV here on Vancouver Island. Um, we're really trying to raise visibility uh, and we any support that anyone has for us would be great. If you want to find out more about the event, you can go to our website. It's avi.org. So avi.org. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's on the front page right now, but you can click the events tab uh, and find out more about it. Um, if you want to donate or support the cause, um, there's also information about how you can do that. Um, and reach out to us here in Nanaimo if we can support you or someone that you know um, with any of our outreach, harm reduction, or clinical programs. Amazing. I really like that drag name, Marina Mercury. What a good, great drag name. Um, yes. Right? Like, I've heard that there's so many drag names in Toronto, but Marina Mercury is a very lovely one. Um, in terms of, and we, we touched on this quite a bit, the in increased investment piece, what would increased investment allow AVI to do and what services would you be able to provide with increased investment from either a federal or a provincial standpoint? Uh, increased investment would mean that I could be way more focused on advocacy, education, outreach, and getting to our World Health Organization commitments around HIV um, a lot quicker uh, because I wouldn't have to spend all kinds of time cobbling together grants that I know are still letting people slip through, right? So we would be able to offer this level of service um, in a broader way, and we, we would be able to support people in a wider basis. Um, uh, the complexity of care and the way the system is now, where it really rewards doctors for having extraordinarily large numbers of patients in their care or attachments, um, at least here in British Columbia, is is really challenging uh, when you have more complex care required for people. So it would allow us to create so much more health equity uh, and sort of narrow the gap between the people with more privilege and people with less privilege or less access. Um, you know, what it would do um, would save the healthcare system a ton of money. Um, one of the things people don't sort of connect, and I always like to you know, I have a corporate background. I, I don't actually come from healthcare. Um, so I always am really interested in the numbers, right? And that is sort of one of my joys of seeing how healthcare works is 
the complex funding models behind how healthcare actually works. And what it would actually do would be to save everybody a lot of money. Um, very similar to the way that doing street outreach or housing someone, I think everyone is familiar with the number um, where if you house somebody, there are three, you know, they will be far less likely to use your emergency room multiple times. Um, and what that does is it might cost you $50,000 a year to house them, but it'll cost you $150,000 a year to send ambulances out on the street time after time and have extended cares with conditions that could have been easily headed off in the past, right? So for folks that think it's an ethical decision or, you know, it's actually a just good business, it makes great sense to fund community health centers because in the long run, we're actually saving money. If we're able to head off things before they become even more complex or require prolonged hospital stays or extreme care measures, um, that's great for the system. That takes it lessens the load on our local hospital, for example. Um, if we're able to take care of people at the ground level and offer basic services like wound care, immunizations, even diagnostics, um, as well as primary care, we're preventing them from going to the hospital where you have to go when there's an emergency or when you require really extended stay. So funding us properly would actually lessen the load on the healthcare system, thereby making things better for everybody making it easier for even the people with the most privilege to access healthcare in a timelier fashion. And so funding this model really benefits us all as a community, not just the people that maybe appear to be receiving the benefits of it at the ground level. What an amazing response. <laughs> that perfectly sums up everything I try to get out of, out of that answer at the end of this podcast episode and something that I think we're all feeling more and more, especially as the healthcare shifts for, for everyone, in, every pop Canadian person and not just you know, um, people who seem to be marginalized, it's starting to, you know, trickle and affect everybody in terms of wait times, etc. So um, Jeremy, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today for World Hepatitis Day, but also about all of the amazing services that AVI offers. Um, and one last time, if anybody wanted to learn more about AVI, what was that website that they could go to? It's avi.org. Amazing. Perfect. Thank you so, so much again. And um, thank you for being here. <laughs> Thanks, Hillary. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Community Matters, a podcast from the Canadian Association of Community Health Centres. To learn more about our association and the important work of community health centres across Canada, go to www.cachc.ca.